Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of the On the Sidelines podcast. I'm Don Picaro. We had to take a little bit of a break. It's getting busy, getting towards that time, baseball season, which means uh, if you follow me, you know that that's the busiest part of my year. But uh, we're back again. Glad to be back. And for today's episode, we have Assistant General Manager of the Bowie Bay Sox, Phil Rye, joining us. It's the AA affiliate of the Baltimore Orioles. Phil, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on. And lots to talk about as we were talking before this uh, pretty busy time here in the minor league baseball community. So the past couple of weeks, how have they been going? Uh, what was your preparation look like? And what's been happening the past couple of weeks down in Bowie? Well, preparation is, uh, you know, is the key. Um, you know, we've actually had a lot of things going on in our ballpark. Uh, first and foremost, we are hosting the alternate site for the Baltimore Orioles right now. So, uh, you know, workouts every day on the field, um, playing a couple of games per week against uh, the Nationals alternate site as they're the closest to us. So uh, a little bit of action going on there. I haven't really even had time to go out and watch any of it since we've been so busy. But, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, really just kind of tying up some, some ends here, uh, especially as the team is going to come north at the end of this week uh, from Florida. So making sure that the hotel reservations are all set for the guys when they get here, making sure that uh, there's transportation. Uh, and, and in the COVID world, uh, you can't have players, you know, doing ride shares and sharing cars with people. So, uh, you know, the Orioles talking back and forth with them about, you know, finding a, a shuttle bus provider from the hotel to the ballpark for the guys that don't have cars and, you know, making sure they get back to the hotel after the workouts and how do they get to the ballpark uh, to, to jump on the bus on the first day of the season and go on the road and, um, you know, making sure that everybody's taken care of and uh, all doing that without knowing who's our, who our roster is. <laughs> so, you know, trying to figure things out and talking to farm directors and assistant farm directors and trainers and, you know, all these people who have never been with your organization before, a lot of new people. So they're trying to get their bearings straight as well as trying to put single game tickets on sale and finalize promotions and, you know, get uh, get the things together that you need for your first games coming up and doing marketing and promotions and printing and game programs. And, you know, it's just uh, the, the to-do list is just a mile long. And you get through like one thing on that list and six others happen to appear on it throughout that time. And you're, you think you're making progress, but at the end of the day, you take a pile of work home this big and you know, like, man, I'm going to be up all night. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it's tough, but um, it's, it's busy. And, and I'd rather have it this way than this time last year where we had nothing going on. I feel like at this point in the baseball season, it becomes, uh, you know, check one thing off your list and write two more things down. Yeah. Every minute it's, uh, you know, and it's one of those things where every time we, you know, we get something new from MLB, it's, uh, you know, not this, but that, and don't forget X, Y, and Z too. And you're like, oh yeah, we got to do those things too. So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot going on, but again, like I said, I'd, I'd rather it be busy than, you know, be wondering when we're going to play our next game. So, uh, we'll, we'll take it, even though it, it means so long nights and, uh, and long days, <laughs> we'll take it. You mentioned the Sim games. Now, that's something that I've had the opportunity to see with the Worcester Red Sox and obviously you with the Bay Sox. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what the Sim games have been like being the alternate site in spring training and how that's kind of worked this year in regards to the MLB? Yeah, so it, it differs a little bit from the alt site um, of last summer where a lot of the guys in, in our organization, the Orioles organization, you know, they had a, a lot of – triple a guys there but then they also brought in a lot of the younger uh the younger prospect players of of the you know the dl hall the grayson rodriguez the adley rutschman you know some of the top level names in the farm system whereas this came and and back then the sim games were uh a lot of you know work to get the pitcher some work and keep them on schedule in case they were needed in the big leagues um 
with regard to the sim games, you know, last summer, there might've been a sim game where you look out and there's a pitcher and a catcher, uh, uh, a shortstop, a third baseman and a center fielder. And that was kind of it. Um, you know, other guys had gotten their work in and they were done for the day. Uh, this time the games, uh, most of the sim games that are intra-squad games actually have umpires at them. They might not be a full, you know, nine innings. They might play five or six, but they're playing it as a, as a legit game. And when uh, our closest team that also has alt site, which is the Washington Nationals down in Fredericksburg, Virginia, they come up once a week and we go there once a week. So they're playing two days a week against somebody that's not themselves, which is, you know, I guess nice to see a different uniform out there uh, for, for that purpose. So um, they get a chance to, you know, to, to play against them. And those are full uh, nine inning games. And uh, at least from what I've been observing here and there, full nine inning games, you know, play it till it's over and, and uh, you know, get, get some full work in, get the starters, you know, five or six innings, get a few, few bullpen, bullpen guys in there. Um, you know, get everybody a few at bats to to face some different competition. So, um, you know, it seems to be be okay for what's what's now. I'm sure they'd rather be playing games every day against different competition, but uh, it's it's what they can do right now. And alt site will wrap up at the end of this week, and and those guys that are there, the majority of them will go off to AAA, uh, Norfolk for us, and uh, and then our, we'll have an influx of guys from from Florida coming in for our season from minor league spring training. May 11th, uh, that's opening day now. The opening day was originally scheduled for April. They pushed the season back a month. What was that like when you got that announcement, and how has that uh, kind of shifted what you've done in regards to, A, just the business aspect, and B, the promotional aspect of the Bay Sox? Well, in double-A and single-A, we were never supposed to start in April. It was always basically meant – uh, originally, it was the major leagues and AAA that were going to start, quote, on time early April, but AA and single A, just to keep the guys spaced out in the, in the complexes in Florida and Arizona, we were always looking at kind of an early May start, which, you know, I, I think was kind of a relief um, from when we got our schedule to when we knew we were going to open, um, giving us, fingers crossed, enough time to uh, you know, bring some staff back or, or, or hire some new staff members. Um, you know, we, you know, like most teams had to, you know, lay off some longtime staff members, you know, back in Jan and June when the season was canceled. Uh, we weren't exempt from that. We had to do that, unfortunately. So it took some time to kind of put the plan together, who we wanted to bring back, what positions we wanted to fill. And uh, recently did that. So we're kind of almost at full staff where we've got a couple of uh, kind of seasonal internship positions still to, to, to finalize. But, you know, we've got who we've got there. We're working on our, our plans, our promotions. I think the biggest thing that it really changed for us was, and a lot of teams are doing this, was instead of putting our entire promotional schedule out before the season or before tickets went on sale, we're doing it kind of piecemeal as the season is going along. So um, we actually went on sale uh, on the 26th with single game tickets for just the two homestands in May. And once the first homestand ends, we then will put tickets on sale for our third homestand or the first homestand in June. So we'll only ever have at most 12 games on sale at a time. And we did that on purpose in case our seating capacity uh, were to be able to be increased uh, down the road sometime during the summer. Hypothetically, let's say the CDC were to say, hey, you don't have to have six feet distance with a mask, three feet distance in a mask, outdoors is good. Well, we didn't want to sell tickets to people expecting a six foot distance. And then all of a sudden they show up and now there's a three foot distance. Um, so we're able to keep the two home stands the way they are, but 
when we put another one on sale, adjust to those new requirements if they were, you know, to come down the, the pipeline for us. So, um, you know, without having tickets sold in, you know, July, August, September, that's really going to help us be able to adjust quicker, I think, should those changes be made um, or any type of change be made. Uh, and then putting the promotions out there, hey, if we were, you know, hypothetically, I, I, I hope this doesn't happen, but you know, there have been games that have been postponed in the NHL and the NBA and MLB and stuff. Well, it might happen in the minors where guys are traveling by bus and in close quarters and locker rooms and things. So we're able to maybe take the games, the promotions of the games that might get postponed due to COVID or something and move those a little bit later. So we're not locked in by having that promotional schedule set and everybody expecting things to happen on a certain day because we haven't announced it that far in advance. So uh, we think those are two things that are really going to help us this year and be able to navigate this kind of unique season and, um, you know, be able to give our fans the, the best that we're going to be able to do this year. Um, I really think that they're just going to be excited to be back at the ballpark and be able to be out with others and, um, you know, see some live baseball for the first time since, you know, September of 19. So I did want to, touch on your career and uh, ask you how you got your start at the Bay Sox and what kind of led you to move up in the ladder in the position? Um, it's kind of a, a unique situation for me. Um, you know, back when I was in school, I was a, a graduate uh, in college in 1996. So yeah, I'm old. Um, but uh, back when I was in school, that was just kind of the beginning of the sport management major uh, exploding out into the colleges and universities. Only a few schools had it. Um, and for me, it really, it really helped me as a student. Um, I, I always tell this story, but I, I talk about taking an introduction to marketing class in, in college. And, you know, we were marketing a product and the product was a widget. And I always wanted to know what the widget was because it might make a difference who we market the widget to. You know, is it a kid widget? Is it an adult widget? Is it a teenager widget? You know, it, if you're talking about marketing, it you know matters who you're gonna who you're gonna pitch this to. And um, when I took an introduction to sport marketing class, we talked about how the Chicago Bulls were gonna sell season tickets when Michael Jordan retired. The two classes are pretty much identical, but the subject matter made me learn more. So I really became invested in the program. And when it came time for me to do a, an internship, being a, a kid from the Boston area, I wanted to work for a Boston team. And uh, I, had, uh, I, I had a very good family friend of ours who was at the time the vice president of the Boston Bruins. And I was like, eh maybe I should take some classes. Maybe, maybe he can hook me up with a job down the road. Not really, you know, understanding the whole, you know, stuff behind it. But I ended up getting an internship at spring training with the Red Sox, which was for a Boston kid in the beginning of January, just, you know, 80 degrees and, and sunshine and no snow, which was awesome. And uh, came back and then ended up working at the Olympics um, that summer in, in 96 in Atlanta, which was really cool. And then, um, you know, started a, a two-year span where I was uh, working at my alma mater, Southern New Hampshire University, as an admissions representative, and uh, decided after two years of that that, you know, this is, this is kind of cool, but if I'm going to do something uh, related to what I just spent about $80,000 for the degree that I was going to get, that I got, I should probably do that now before I've gotten into some other type of career, so... Uh, I kind of packed up and went to the baseball winter meetings, had some meetings set up uh, with some teams, ended up finding out about the the group that owned the Bowie Bay Sox and a couple other teams. Uh, I heard that they were hiring. I had, I was uh, given an in kind of an inside that they were hiring for full-time sales reps. I met the assistant GM at the time. Um, I basically walked up to him and said, I heard you're looking for full-time sales reps. I can't wait to join the organization. And he kind of looked at me like, who are you? Um, and I told him who sent me over and he was like, oh, okay. And uh, the next day I had an interview and that night 
um, they offered me the job and uh, been there ever since. So in uh, in January of 1999 is when I started down in, down here in Bowie and I've uh, been here ever since. So uh, it's been a, been a pretty good run, um, experienced a lot, uh, seen a lot of guys go up through to the big leagues, made a lot of friends and, uh, um, you know, in, enjoy the fans. And, and uh, you know, it's just it's fun to be at the ballpark every day. For those who listen who, you know, don't really understand the minor league sports concept here, you started off as a sales executive and then you mm-hmm. went into marketing promotions and now you're the assistant general manager. So that comes with a lot of different uh, yeah. tasks, a lot of different hats you're wearing. So can you explain for someone who doesn't really, uh, hasn't really worked in the minor leagues, what you do on a daily basis and how that all kind of ties in together with sales, marketing, uh, assistant uh, general manager and kind of everything in between? So, you know, for those that don't really understand the minor league baseball structure, small office, a lot of tasks. Um, the majority of this of the minor league offices, there are some that are that are quite large, uh, especially in you know AAA teams and and things like that. But um, you know, in in many minor league offices, there can be three or four or five to maybe twelve to fifteen full time people, a few seasonal interns. Um, and, and you're trying to do it all and trying to attract, you know, 200, 300, 400, 500,000 people a year uh, through your gates. And so, you know, kind of take it from my experience back when, when I started, I, I came in late. I was at the end of January for a season that started in April. And um, I've got a sales goal in front of me, a group sales goal, a ticket sales goal. And I have no idea what I'm doing when I walk in the door. And uh, so, I, you know, I got probably about three days worth of training and a stack of papers and said, go sell some tickets. Um, so I did. And, um, you know, the, the cold call life is not glamorous, but I, I, I would recommend everybody do it, especially in the minor leagues, because sales is the lifeblood of the organization. If nobody comes out to the ballparks, that means nobody's buying tickets, nobody's buying hot dogs, nobody's buying beers, nobody's buying t-shirts and hats. And the organization isn't going to be around long. Um, so people in the seats make everything else more valuable. The more people in the seats, the more your sponsorships are worth. Um, if, you're, if your outfield billboard is worth $10,000 with 200,000 people in the seats, well, then at 400,000 people in the seats, it's probably worth upwards of $20,000. So the more people, the more, the more it's worth. Um, so that's, that's a, uh, you know, a, a bonus. Um, I did sales for two years, but literally about three days before the, my first season started, we were sitting in a, in a conference room and, and our GM at the time said, uh, who does not have a game day responsibility yet? And I should have known at that time not to raise my stupid hand. Um, but I was the only one that raised my hand and they looked at me and said, Oh, that's great. You're the on-field guy. And I went, Okay. And then after the meeting, I went, what the hell is the on-field guy do? And uh, our PA announcer kind of called me over and he was like, well, you're, you're the guy on the microphone, getting the crowd, you know, jazzed up, handling the between innings contests, things like that. And I said, okay, I can, I can do that. And uh, the first few games I was horrible. I mean, it was reading off of a, of a clipboard you know, uh, and, and into a microphone and not paying attention to anything that was going on. I was just trying to get my bearings. But then I started to catch my groove. And I ended up doing that for four or five seasons. Um, and it was it was fun to do. I created kind of this persona. Um, it was different than my nine to five persona. It was kind of like fun guy, um, you know, there's a rain delay. I got to go out there and entertain. I got to do the, you know, the Hulk Hogan, you know, let me hear you. I've got one t-shirt in my hand for 8,000 people and everybody wants it. And I could milk that for 30 minutes, you know, if I had to. Um, and sometimes I did. Um, there were downsides to that job too, where, you know, on the 4th of July, you hit your fireworks curfew and your GM sends you out in the field to tell everybody between the the, the 13th and 14th inning that you're not shooting fireworks that night and get about 6,000 people screaming and booing at you as you walk off the field with a police escort. Not one of my greatest days. 
Um, but you know, you, you do it and then you, you go have a couple of beers and try to feel better about yourself afterwards. <laughs> um, but then our team, uh, after the, the first couple of years that I was there, our teams were sold to another group and we never had a marketing department when I started there. It was kind of like everybody did it. Everybody put together promotions, but our new owners wanted to centralize that and make a marketing department and, and group. So I started, I headed that up. Um, they were like, yeah, direct sales is not your thing. You've done a good job at it, but your niche is over here. So let's get you involved in this. And that brought a whole new kind of uh, set of responsibilities with planning and, and, and setting up promotions and, you know, marketing and advertising and striking deals with media partners and budgeting, uh, you know, for our spends and, and all that type of stuff. Meanwhile, I handled all of the uniform ordering for our team. I started to take over our team travel, uh, you know, all of our hotel reservations. I started selling sponsorships as well as, as marketing promotions. I still had some group clients. I still had some ticket clients. Um, and and as, as more people, you know, that I had worked with moved on to other things and we were in kind of in between bringing people in to replace, I took over public relations, community relations, media relations, press releases, uh, website, um, graphics, video board stuff, uh, you know, all these different things, none of which I had ever studied in school. I never touched a video. I never touched a graphic, Adobe. That was a foreign word to me, Adobe, when I started doing it, Photoshop. But, and I still have never taken a class in any of that, but I think I look at it a little bit differently too, because I think I look at what I put out there from the consumer versus what looks great, you know, with a graphic eye to it. I just put it out there, try to put out something that's going to capture your attention and be like, okay, tickets go on sale today at 10 o'clock and, and get the information out there. So I think I try to look at it more from what I would want to see as a consumer versus what looks pretty and, and everything else, try to make it effective. It's probably not the best in the world, but nobody's complained so far. Um, but over the years, as I got promoted up to assistant GM, a lot of the duties have stayed and I've gotten some more uh, on top of that. But there's a lot of things that I oversee, marketing promotions, still do some sponsorship sales, still do some group sales oversee a staff, oversee PR, website, um, you know, game day production. I do the game script for everything that we do, but, you know, during our game, um, I, you know, the liaison to our booster club. I, you know, do a lot of stuff in, in organizing things with our team, our manager, our players. So the, there is no typical day for me. It's just kind of what's the hottest potato when I walk in that has to get put out quickly and then I move on to the next hottest um, especially this time of the year um, you know what do I have to get done today and what can what can hold off till tomorrow um, especially you know two weeks from opening day so um, but it's but it's fun it, you know it's it's keeps you it keeps you on your toes lots going on and and I like having my hands in in a lot of the you know a lot of the parts of the cookie jar um, because it keeps things relevant, you know, it doesn't get stale. You never know what each day is going to bring. And, uh, I certainly don't know that when I walk in the door each day. I want to jump back to the t-shirt line, because that might be one of the best lines I've heard on this show. I can hundred percent relate to it. Uh, one of my first internships with the Massachusetts Pirates, I was the on-field MC. So very similar thing. And we had two t-shirt tosses a game. The first one came in the first quarter in which we had two other new interns who uh, didn't know that it was split in half, so grabbed all the T-shirts and threw them out. <laughs> For the second T-shirt toss, we had two T-shirts left, and we milked a, I'd say, 90-second to two-minute promotion with two T-shirts, just mm -hmm. ran around the entire field, and it's, it's something you got to do, you it know? It takes skill, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'll never forget one where we had the tarp on the field, but it had stopped raining, but we were expecting it to rain again. And I'm out there with a microphone. You know, I had just pulled tarp, um, drenched. You know, I got my tarp clothes on. My shoes are soaked. I got, you know, I can wring my socks out. And um, 
I'm out there, you know, sliding back and forth, uh, you know, between like the first baseline and the third baseline with one t-shirt. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing the, let me hear it Hulk Hogan thing. And I'm oblivious to what's going on kind of behind me, but like half the staff was dying, laughing, watching me do this and decided to join in behind me. And so I'm running to like the third baseline doing the, you know, I need to hear it louder. And they're doing it with me back and forth across the field. So I hear the crowd start laughing and I'm looking at them like, what is going on? Like this, I'm, I'm being a complete bozo right now, but that's what I'm here to do is be a bozo. And then I looked up, like I turned around real quick and I saw like seven of our staff members kind of going like, what, what, what? And I'm like, you guys. So I made, I made them keep doing it. I was like, I'm going to milk this for everything I possibly can for like the next 10 minutes. And it was one t-shirt. I think we got, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes out of one t-shirt and a lot of people without any voices left. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you just don't know what's in the promo closet and sometimes you got a lot and sometimes you got nothing, but you'll make it work to, to get a rise out of people. And, and sometimes it works. And it's funny how many people I've had on the podcast that have worked in minor league sports and they've had similar stories to you where one day they're the on-field MC and then whether it's the next day, a couple of years later or whatever for the same team, they're the assistant general manager, the general manager, yeah. the, you know, promotions. And they might still be doing the on-field stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some of them are. One of the first episodes uh, I had on this podcast, Dave Peterson, manager of the Worcester Bravehearts, he's one of those guys, you know, he's the general manager of the team and he's out dancing in the fifth inning. He has a rally dance in the eighth inning. And, you know, it's one of those things where you wear a lot of hats and some of those may include dancing and, uh, you know, yeah. sold out I've danced not well, but uh, we, we came up with years ago as a way to kind of, kind of make our staff kind of check their ego at the door, so to speak. And, um, we decided that we were going to have our staff disco dance between innings on the dugout. So we were kind of coming up with a name. So we ended up calling ourselves the Diamond Disco Dancers. And we were doing a choreograph. We brought in a dance instructor about a week before the season started to choreograph this dance for like, I don't know, 60, 70 seconds. And we decided to do this song called Shake Your Groove Thing. Um, and the the original performer of that song in the 70s was a group called Peaches and Herb. And apparently Herb lived in D.C. and heard about us dancing to his song and came out to a game to watch us dance very badly to shake your groove thing awesome. and um he was very nice about it but we knew that like he was mortified that we were doing what we were doing to his you know vaunted song shake your groove thing but you know it was one of those things where hey we're all gonna go up and do this together we're all gonna you know look like complete morons together but it's gonna be something we can do together and laugh about years later and and we do when we get, when I see those people, you know, from those years, um, you know, we, we talk about it and, and share a good laugh and it, it, it's all in good fun. Um, we have retired the, the Diamond Disco dancers a few years ago. There are some people that still want us to bring it back, but I think, uh, I think the, the casket door has been closed. The key's been locked and thrown away and uh, I think we're done. <laughs> well, you know, you can never uh, take yourself too seriously in minor league. No kind of have to always have that you know yep. uh, goofy side to you but speaking of that it's a good transition I wanted to talk about uh, you know when you I'm sure you've oversaw overseen a lot of uh, staff in your day a lot of interns so for you you know when what makes a good intern what makes someone a good staff member uh, for you because summer baseball it's kind of the you know the the birthplace of internships there's a lot of people who start their career start their internships in minor league baseball so for you what makes uh, a good intern in summer league baseball something I, I always tell people that I hire especially interns is become invaluable somehow um, you know the the those that 
I find that seem to excel and move up the ladder are the ones that are always, not always, but many times asking what else they can do versus waiting for a, a superior supervisor to tell them what to do. So instead of sitting in the conference room waiting for somebody to come in and, and give you an assignment, which may not come because, you know, the tarp's got to get pulled six times today and, you know, I got to come back and I got a, a, a meeting and four phone calls I got to do and they're just sitting there in the conference room for three hours waiting for their next task. Um, those that ask what can be done, um, those that say, hey, do you guys need help with something? Or go to the PR person and go, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a communications major. If you ever need a weekend off of writing the game story uh, while the team's on the road, hey, let me take a crack at it. I'm more than happy to do that, follow along the game and, and give you a break. And, you know, people don't really realize how much that kind of physical and mental break can be for somebody who's literally writing a story about a game every single day for five months you know sometimes you just want to get away from it especially if the team's no good <laughs> you know if they're if they're sputtering along and you're trying to you're trying to come up with that next headline to be like well we only lost nine to three tonight you know um you know it's 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 mentally draining sometimes so i always tell interns and, and staff members like become invaluable um, you know, for me, it was one of those things where, you know, our PR guy left in the middle of a season and we needed somebody to write the press releases and get the information out. And I said, I'll do it. You know, I was overseeing it anyway. So it kind of was my job, but I'm like, I, I got it. And, you know, I taught myself how to write press releases. I, I researched it. I typed up a few. I sent a couple to buddies of mine who, you know, are in PR and they gave me a few pointers and, you know, here's what you do when you send it out and different things. And were they perfect? No, but they got the information out. And I've, you know, since got better at it. Um, you know, at the end of my first year, uh, we became, or middle, midway through my first year, we became the, the first double A team to ever get a video board. And we had an intern that was part of that project. And then at the end of the season, our GM was like, okay, thanks for your help. Have a, have a great career. And about two weeks later, he came to me and went, um, we got a problem. And I said, yeah, what's that? And he goes, nobody knows how to turn the video board on. We get rid of the kid that, that turned it on every day. And now we don't. I said, no, you got rid of the kid who turned it on every day. And now nobody knows how to do it. And he goes, well, we'd like you to learn it. And I was like, I don't know anything about video boards, video, nothing. He goes, well, we need somebody to know how it works so that they can load the stuff in there so that we can operate it during games. So I was like, all right, I'll, I'll figure it out. And, you know, all those things over the years piled up into my current job description, which is other duties as assigned. <laughs> I think that is my whole job description. Um, and, you know, became, I guess, invaluable to the organization where, you know, I, I have a lot of responsibilities and can do a lot of things. Um, and, and that's just one of the, the things I, I just tell people to, to experience it, ask a lot of questions, do not assume that you know the answer to anything. Um, if you don't know it, don't make it up. Um, that's the worst thing you can do, especially if you're talking to a fan or a potential customer or something. Um, it's better to say, I don't know the answer. I will get it for you and I will, I will bring it to you or I will call you tomorrow or, or something. Um, I stress that on my staff. The other big thing for me is I tell everybody that I am not going to ask you to do something that I either have not done or am unwilling to do. Me and Heights, we don't get along. I'm not going up on the pitched roof of the stadium for anything, so I'm not asking you to do it. Um, now, there's only one person that has to go up on the roof. That's the stadium ops guy, and I don't hire him, so that holds true for me. I don't have to ask him to do that. Um, I'm not climbing light poles. We have companies to do that anyway, but I wouldn't do that if you gave me all the money in the world. I'm not climbing that thing. They, they sway too much. 
but other than that, I've jumped in and poured beers. I've grilled hot dogs. I've, you know, um, we don't even run our own food service, but just, you know, walking by, seeing things that need to happen. Um, you just jump in where you're needed. You pick up trash on the ground. You, you escort somebody to their seat. You jump in as an usher or a ticket taker if needed. You just do it. And people observe that. People see that you're willing to, to go the extra mile. And, and that resonates a lot you know, with those that make the decisions on who to bring in. Um, and, when, and when references are needed and when resumes are getting built, um, everything's a little bit of a help there. And uh, you know, that's, that's kind of the stuff I tell you know, the, the, young, the young employees. I said, I also say, you know, come in and be prepared to start working at nine don't walk in at nine because if you walk in at nine and turn your computer on and talk sports for 10 minutes, it's nine 30 before you've even done anything. And we all know that at four 30, your brain's shutting off and you're getting, so you basically gave an hour less of your time that day. Uh, but if you walk in at eight 45, turn your computer on, get your coffee, whatever it is, you're ready to go when the bell hits nine o'clock and you're already 30 minutes ahead of your, your peers. Um, and that stands out too. Um, and, and, you know, just, just so that you're ready to go and, and, and get that day's tasks done. What about before they're hired? So the hiring process, the interviews, the, uh, you know, cover letters, resumes, what stands out for you when you're looking at incoming applications? You know, for me, um, I, I always, uh, you know, in, in internships, it's, it's kind of hard to already have experience in working in sports. Um, so I, I, you know, if they have that, then that's always a bonus. Um, you know, if they've, you know, even worked part-time, you know, as a, as a kid's park attendant or a parking crew attendant or something like that, with a team, that's always a, you know, a plus because they've been around and they get kind of what's happening. Um, but it's very, you know, especially if you're bringing in a, 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 like a summer college intern, maybe like an unpaid for credit type of intern. I look for somebody who's, you know, who's held a, a job um, part-time after school, something like that. That's always a plus because they've been a part of a, a team environment somebody who's maybe played organized sports because they've been in a team environment. They've had to uh, put their own personal gains aside for the betterment of the group. In many cases, um, they've learned how to operate as part of a group, not an individual. Um, you know, I look for somebody that, that can provide some good references, character references, you know, about them. Um, you know, somebody who's, uh, you know, really just kind of, kind of bring some, some different attributes to the table. Um, the person that, you know, that writes in their cover letter, you know, I played baseball since I was a kid and I'm a big fan and stuff I, does not matter to me one bit. Um, you're not applying for a, a job to be a player. You're not applying for a job to be a, um, you know, an, a statistical analyst or a, you know, track man analyst or a player development or a scout or anything like that. Um, and those, I do get those resumes and I just tell them, I'm like, we have nothing to do with that. We, I think that's the biggest misnomer about my job and, and, you know, my, like our GM and other people in management that because we're the GM and the AGM, we sign and hire the players, which in the affiliated minor leagues, we got nothing to do with that. Right. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of the letdown things to tell those people, like, we don't deal in player development. Um, we just host player development. This <laughs> is kind of the way I go about it. But yeah, it, it's really, you know, it depends on the, the position you're looking for. But, you know, somebody that's had, got experience kind of, you know, in, in the marketing and promotion side, putting together events, maybe some event planning, it could be for, uh, uh, you know, an organization at school, a fraternity, sorority, a, a student activities council, um, stuff like that. Those are good things. You know, just look for somebody who can, can be a good people person, somebody who's outgoing. Um, you're going to have to go up and talk to fans. You're going to have to go up and, and, you know, be engaging with kids. 
and be polite and that type of stuff and be a good communicator. And, and if you can do that, I think that's a start uh, into kind of an internship uh, in, in sports, especially in marketing and promotions. If you're a very reserved person, uh, one, you're going to be really bad doing cold calls, calling people and, and trying to get them to buy stuff. And two, I don't think you're going to be that great in, in mingling with the fans, the people, and, you know, trying to hand them something at the end of the game on the way out or, you know, going up to them and saying, hey, would you like to be a part of, uh, you know, our dizzy bat race tonight or something like that um, if you're kind of on the timid side. So that's kind of what we look for. Um, but every case is different. You know, we've had timid people that have come out of their shell and we've had people that are really outgoing not be outgoing and we're like what happened what happened there you know <laughs> you just never know uh what can happen so a lot of non-baseball entertainment you know in between innings you have the promotions whether it be that or just hosting different events you mentioned event planning you know stuff that isn't baseball related how has that um culminated in your career and how have you managed to kind of combine not only the baseball business side of things but um, just in general, the promotion side of things, the entertainment that isn't baseball related? Um, for me, I think it's, you know, I'm, I think one of my good skills is I'm a multitasker. So I can, you know, I can kind of compartmentalize in my head, okay, I know this is coming up. I've got to get this done, but I also have to, you know, look ahead to, you know, B, C, and D coming next homestand, and also that thing that's two months away, but we've got to get tickets on sale for that, so we've got to finalize some details there in addition to 12 other things that are going on. So I, I can, I, I guess it's just through doing it that I've been able to kind of compartmentalize that, and, you know, I can see the, the, the right now, the short term, the midterm, and the long term of things that we've got going on uh, at the ballpark. One of the things that, you know, minor league stadiums and, and arenas and stuff have really be, but, but really minor league baseball stadiums have become our entertainment centers. You know, we kind of look at it and go, yeah, we play 70 home games a year and, and that's, that's what we do. But we're also looking at our facility for, uh, to be used for so many other things. You know, COVID has, has really opened that up across the country where, you know, you, uh, you know, we have high schools and, and middle schools and private schools calling us going, we need an outdoor venue for our graduation. Can, can we rent your stadium? Absolutely, you know. Um, and we put a, a package together and a plan in place on distancing and how many tickets each student can get. And, you know, we're looking at, you know, some graduations where it's the, it's the senior class of this high school, but they're going to be three graduations throughout the day it'll be like a to f in the morning and you know g to m in the afternoon and n to z at nighttime or whatever however the breakdown goes and um you know everyone's going to get two hours to do their thing and um you know we're looking at uh, i actually just booked our first ever comedy show at the ballpark um because going to a comedy club is you know only going to bring in a hundred people but i can put six or 700 people in, a, in an area for a comedy show outdoors. Um, and it's going to help us in promotions and things like that. Um, you know, we've done concerts, we do festivals, um, professional wrestling, um, professional cricket, you know, all these things we've done boxing. We had Layla Ali box at our ballpark and a pay-per-view event many years ago. So we're not afraid to try anything as long as we, think we can pull it off we'll we'll go for it and so for me I actually really enjoy planning those events because it's different than your typical MILB you know game promotion um, it lets me kind of stretch my imagination a little bit and look at the configuration of the of the stadium and where can we put people and where does the stage go and how do we do lights and do we use our own sound or do we have to get a sound company and do we put people on the field for this? Do we need a roll floor? Um, how many, you know, how, how are these pieces all going to go together? And it's, it's a big puzzle, but it's a cool puzzle to put together. And, um, you know, th those things are, are, are fun uh, when we get them. And I just think that 
our business, the minor league baseball business is going to become more and more about stadium usage than maybe even more about the baseball. Baseball will be our, our major tenant because we have 70 of those games a year, but when they're not home, it's parking lot rentals and driving, uh, you know, organizations looking to do safe driving classes. And it's bringing out, you know, a, a Michelin company so that people can test the new tire and, you know, all those different things. It's parking lot rentals, um, you know, where you have companies renting your parking lot to park their vehicles in and, you know, it's just trying to put those puzzle pieces together and, and dates and stuff like that and make it work. So I think that's the fun part is you never know what what call or email you're going to get next saying, hey, we'd like to use your ballpark or your facility for X. And then you try to put it together and, and, uh, and make it work for everybody. Now, there hasn't been a real baseball game played in, well, any minor league stadium since 2019. So May 11th, opening day. What's that going to be like when you finally welcome fans into the stands for an actual baseball game? I think it's going to be a relief um, for, for, a, for a lot of people. Um, you know, minor league season opens May 4th, so we get an extra week to prepare, thank goodness. Um, I don't think I could be staring right now at single-digit numbers of, of days left <laughs> like some teams are. Uh, looking at going eight days left till uh, till we swing the doors open. I think we'll learn a lot from some of our sister clubs and league clubs on, you know, things that worked, things that didn't work those first couple of days. And we might have to make some some shifts, uh, you know, even in our preparation going up to the last few days. Um, but that'll be okay. I think the big thing from from what I hope and what we hope are our fans are looking at is you know the rules and the regulations and the restrictions and things are not our doing we have county and state and municipality and major league baseball you know all have these restrictions and to open up we have to abide by them all um and so Fans aren't going to be able to get autographs. That's it's not the Bowie Bay Sox saying you can't get an autograph. It's Major League Baseball telling us the players are not going to be allowed to sign, nor are your fans going to be allowed to ask. And by the way, they also can't sit within the first three rows of the field, and they can't stand there just for distancing purposes. And I think there'll be a lot of ex explanation to that. Um, you know, we – we and every team have gotten, you know, your share of, of social media kickback to your reopening plans. I can't believe you're going to make people wear masks when it's 80 degrees outside. We're not making people wear masks. We're simply um, enforcing the rules that are put forth by all the, the, the governances around that you have to wear a mask and you can't hold your food and eat it on the way back from a concession stand, you have to take it to your seat and then you can take your mask off and eat um, and, and all that. And, and I think it's, it's just an education process. We hope that, you know, we hope that our, our seasonal employees don't take the brunt of, of any, you know, backlash. We don't want our, our great ushers and ticket takers and stuff to be the people that are, are the fall guy for somebody that doesn't want to wear their mask when they walk in the ballpark you know, and tells them, you can't make me do this. Well, yes, we can, or you don't have to come in. I mean, it's, it's a choice. If you want to come in, here's the rules. If you don't want to come in, you can do what you want outside. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's going to be relief to, after all these months of planning and changes to the plans and, and everything else, it'll be, we're just going to get back to what we do best. We're just going to put on an event for people. It's going to look a little different. It's going to feel a little different. It's going to sound a little different, but it's baseball again. And, you know, I think, I don't know what our roster is, but hopefully we have, you know, the DL Halls and the Grayson Rodriguez's and the, and the Adley Rutschman's and people get really excited about seeing those players who are going to be the future of the Orioles in the next year or two. And, you know, we can get through the first month and then it kind of gets back to a little bit more sense of normalcy. 
Um, I know from a stress level, the stress will go down a little bit after we've kind of got a couple of games under our belt. Um, and, and we kind of see how people are reacting to the different rules and regulations and if we need to make any adjustments and that type of stuff. But, um, you know, we're just looking forward to, to seeing people again and, and people we haven't seen since, you know, we lost game four of the Eastern League Championship on, in, in September of 19. Um, it's been a long 18 or so months without stuff going on. And uh, we're looking forward just to putting on some stuff again <laughs> and, uh, and, and hearing the, the turnstiles go and, and smelling some hot dogs. And uh, I can't wait to have some nachos. Haven't had any in, in a long time. So, uh, you know, just get some ballpark food and go and, uh, and, and really just, you know, enjoy it. I think it'll be hard not kind of walking through the stands and going to sit with fans and things like that, but it'll be good just to kind of walk by and give a fist bump or a wave and, you know, thanks for coming, thanking people for being there and, and, and coming back to support us. So um, that's kind of what we're looking forward to. Hopefully it, hopefully it goes that way and, and it goes the same up in Worcester. Obviously you guys have a brand new ballpark to open. So I think people will be really excited about that may take a little bit more of the edge off. Um, we also have some really cool, uh, you know, things that have happened in our ballpark. We've gotten a brand new parking lot. They've, the county has painted the entire stadium. They've redone all the landscaping. We have a brand new padded outfield wall. We have some different new things inside the ballpark. So I think our fans are going to kind of drive up and go, wow, you guys have been busy, you know, and, and hopefully that will kind of, you know, maybe take a little bit of the edge to, you know, talking about the good things. Uh, versus the things they're not allowed to do <laughs> or they have to do to come in. So we'll see how that goes. But, um, yeah, it's it's exciting to finally be looking, you know, down through a tunnel and there is a light there going, okay, we can see it there. You know, we're going to open this sucker back up and we're going to, we're going to play again. And, uh, and hopefully, hopefully we can get, get people away from, you know, the everydayness of every day. And, you know, we can, uh, you know, we can, we can be a, a little bit of help back to normalcy. All right. We're going to end this podcast the same way we always do with the sideline report segment. Uh, just a quick hit questionnaire to give the audience a little bit better uh, understanding of who you are and some of your favorite memories working in baseball. Sure. All right. First question we got. Favorite game you've ever attended, whether it be MILB, MLB, uh, or even a different sport? Uh, my favorite game I ever attended was being six rows behind the goalie at the old Boston Garden in the 1990 Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, it was the longest game in the history of the Stanley Cup Finals, triple overtime against the Edmonton Oilers. Huge Bruins fan here. I sat right behind Andy Moog, and uh, Bruins were down 2 nothing in the third period. My favorite player in any sport, Ray Bork. Two goals in the third to tie it up. It goes triple OT. The lights went out. The fog in the ice. No air conditioning. Uh, I'll never forget at like 12:25, the PA announcer saying the last train for Boston out of Boston westbound leaves in five minutes, and nobody left. Um, I was, uh, I think I was 14 years old. Was a sophomore in high school. And uh, I remember getting home from that game at three in the morning, my mom waiting for me uh, saying, if you think you're not going to school in three hours, I've got, uh, you know, another story for you because you're getting up and you're going. And I don't remember that school day. Unfortunately, they lost that game, lost 4-0 in the series, but um, it's the only Stanley Cup finals game I've ever been to. And it's still the longest finals game in the history of the NHL. That was one of the craziest games of all time. It, it really was. Um, you know, again, the fog, the lights going out. There was a delay. Um, they sent the teams to the locker room. I'll never forget Craig Janney ended up having to go to the hospital for an IV. It was hotter than Hades in there. Um, I mean, it had to be 90 degrees. I lost my voice before the puck dropped in the first period. Uh, it was a great memory with my dad, who's no longer with us. Uh, we went to the game. Um, and I'll never forget – the 1991 Upper Deck Hockey Set card set, the Andy Moog card, the back of it, the picture on the back, had him sitting on the side of the net, which was right in front of me during that game. 
And I actually had Andy Moog sign that card for me on the back because I was at the game. And uh, so I still have that and my little ticket stub. Really, really interesting point about that game. I always ask people how much they think that ticket was six rows behind the glass um, face value on that ticket was $39. Today it would be like $3,900, but my dad and I paid $39 a piece to sit right behind, basically right behind the glass in the, in the finals at the garden. Um, wow. Probably the best bargain in sports. <laughs> Seriously. You can't find those ticket prices anymore. No, I can't find those anymore. <laughs> All right. Second one, favorite player that has came through the Bay Sox while you were working. Wow. That's like asking me which one's my favorite child. Um, there, there's so many for so many reasons, you know, whether we became really good friends or, you know, they were really a help to me um, or we really got, you know, got close to each other, um, you know, on and off the field. Um, you can, man, that's, that's, that's a really tough one because there's been so many good guys that have come through Um That's, I think one of my favorite guys was a guy by the name of Rick Short. Um, he played parts of like three seasons in Bowie towards my first years there. And uh, in 99, 2000, Rick was a, he was a utility guy before utility guys became popular. He was a utility guy that did a lot of things really well, including hit like 330 but couldn't get up to the big leagues because he didn't play a position really, really well. Whereas nowadays a guy like that would get called up to the big leagues tomorrow because he does have versatility and can play, you know, he's a Kike Hernandez. He can play left and right and third and second and first and DH and hit and, uh, and all that and be your third catcher. Um, but back then that wasn't the way it worked. And uh, he ended up finally getting with the Nationals and was hitting like 420 in AAA New Orleans uh, on the year he got called up. And I, I mean, I, I was beside myself that he finally got the chance to go up and he played a couple games, got sent back down, got called back up later in September and actually broke his wrist sliding into the left field wall. And that was the end of his major league career. He ended up going to Japan and playing like five years over there. Um, ended up winning a batting title in Japan, which is not what you want to do as a non-Japanese player. Um, they, don't, they don't like that over there. And uh, they basically told him he was done over there. So he ended up becoming a scout and player development guy. Wow. But, uh, yeah, he was, he was one of my top guys uh, over the years. Shorty. All right. Uh, what about your favorite day on the job? If you can recall a day that you just had a great time working in Bowie or a game that comes to mind at the ballpark. You know, I'll tell you, one of my favorite promotions that, that I've put together and um, has really be, been a, a big part of my career and, and my life is um, I spent two years working to put together uh, our first ever tribute to the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And um, I was able to work with a, a woman who played in the league for a few years based out of Virginia. And she helped me put together our first event. And at our first event, we were able to bring, I think it was eight or nine former AAG PBL players to the ballpark, which outside of their annual reunion was probably the largest assembly of former players anywhere and I didn't really know who they were at the time I mean I did my research and stuff and, and got to know them but so many of them became a part of my life and really have kind of become like surrogate grandmothers to me um, we've unfortunately lost many of them and, and some of them have gotten too old to travel but uh, I will call one or two of them up at any moment's notice and just say hi. And it's like their own kids have called them, you know, on the phone that day. And we'll just talk about my kids and, um, and, and they're, what they're doing in baseball. And, um, but, but one of those days that one, the first day we had, we, we had a woman named Jean Fout join us. And I didn't know a whole lot about Jean, but a lot of fans did. 
and she had an autograph line two and a half hours long and she was basically called the Sandy Koufax of the AAG PBL. And I went back and looked at her numbers and man, she was the Sandy Koufax. She was a dominant pitcher in that league. And, and just to have her in our ballpark and get to meet her and know her was, was pretty special as with all the ladies. And I still keep in touch with those that are left, uh, you know, with us today. And, and it's a lot of fun to have them when, when they're able to come. That's awesome. What about your favorite ballpark that you've ever attended? It's got to be Fenway. I mean, really? Fenway over Camden. We, we, uh, one of the coolest days, I guess, on the job too, was back many years ago, the Boston Red Sox used to do a program called Futures at Fenway, where they would have a minor league double header at Fenway Park. So um, they would bring in like their AAA affiliate, in Pawtucket, now Worcester, and let's say their double-A affiliate to play a double-header at Fenway on a Saturday afternoon, regular scheduled games. So one year they had uh, Pawtucket was playing Norfolk in Pawtucket. Norfolk happens to be our triple-A affiliate, and we as the double-A affiliate were playing in Portland, so it was kind of a Red Sox-Orioles double-A and triple-A double-header that day. And uh, so I was able to go up there and and get media credentials and team credentials. And I think I got to the ballpark at like eight in the morning and the game wasn't until noon. And I just kind of was like, I'm going to see how far I can go with this thing around my neck. And I walked into the dugout and the security guy was like, hey, how's it going? And I walked onto the field and the security guy was like, hey, good morning. And I walked out to the wall and the guy was like, Hey, how you doing? I walked in the wall, signed my name, and they were like, "Hey, have a good time." And I walked out to the bullpens and basically I went anywhere I wanted to. And I was like, "Being a Boston kid, this is this is pretty darn cool, <laughs> you know." I need one of these passes every time I come here. But uh, yeah, it was a really cool day, um, you know. But Fenway for me is is where it's at. I went to one of those uh, Futures at Fenway events. I probably had to be like eight or nine. So it was probably, I want to say, 05, 06, around there. So Yeah, they did it for, I don't know, it was about six or seven years, and then it kind of, kind of, you know, lost its luster. But the cool part about those days was, you know, just Joe Fan in New England could get a seat, you know, up close to the field where you have really have no shot at ever getting those tickets, you know, for a Sox game unless you're a, a season ticket holder or no one. Um, so you're able to get up close, and it was, I don't know, 10, 12 bucks or something for a, you know, box seat ticket, which – which was pretty cool, um, you know, for that type of a day and, you know, reduce concession prices and things, but you got to see two games, um, which was kind of cool too. So. Yeah, that's a great point. I sat right behind the the home dugout, signed my name on the little dugout thing and everything. Mm-hmm. That was probably only like 12 bucks. So yeah. yeah, those were fun times. And finally, the last one, this is how we always end the show. Final question of the sideline report. If there's a movie made about you, who's playing you and what movie is it? Probably nobody wants to play me. (laughs) Um, I don't know why I get this. I don't think it at all. So viewers, I'm not saying I look like this person at all, but people tell me I look like Ryan Seacrest. So I guess it's got to be him. Okay. Um, I don't see it at all, but I guess it's got to be Seacrest because people tell me that, but, uh, I don't see it at all. <laughs> I see Chris. Well, hey, if other people are saying it, then that's what you have but, to go with, right? But he's got like 37 jobs, and I guess I do too. So maybe maybe <laughs> it's meant to be. I don't know. He could he could always use another job. He's not making enough money out there. There you go. <laughs> he'll, uh, he'll play a good you, I feel like. You know, he'll, yeah, why not? he'll manage it. Yeah. All right. And finally, before we end the show, uh, just a piece of advice to everyone that's been listening on the podcast about uh, working in sports from someone who actually does it for a living. You know, if you're going to get into it, you know, put yourself into it. Um, you know, it's, it's, I always kind of call it a, a young person's um, career to get into it. It's very hard to get into it when you've gone off and done other things and then try to get into sports because you're not doing it for the cash. You're not doing it for the pension plan. You're not doing it for the retirement benefits. Um, those rarely exist if at all unless you're part of a league or something 
But if you're getting into it for the right reasons and you're willing to put in the time, the effort, the passion, it's very rewarding. And, um, you know, you'll have a lot of fun in it and you'll grow in it. And I always think that the things that you do in sports, the work ethic that you um, that you acquire and that you you build throughout your time will serve you in whatever you want to do, maybe after sports, if you go into business, you go into finance, you go into whatever, um, people look, people look at people who work in sports and go, Oh, that person gets, you know, seven game homestands working late, you know, and I don't say get taken advantage of either in those jobs where they go, ah, that person will do seven days a week for no more money, go get what's, what's supposed to be yours. But you understand the 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 work ethic and the time and the effort that has to go into it and you're willing to do it to a certain level um, in, in something else but I, I've learned that in sports big time it's the work ethic it's the time management it's those skills that can benefit you far after you've decided that you know 12 game homestands suck and baseball is not what you want to do anymore <laughs> or whatever the case might be um, but you've learned a lot of good lessons in, in, in business, in your career and in life that you can take forward. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was fun. That was episode 25 with assistant general manager of the Bowie Bay Sox, Bill Rye. He joins us here on, on the sidelines. If you like this episode and any other episode, you can follow us on Twitter at OTS underscore podcast underscore or on Instagram at OTS underscore pod. Once again, Phil Rye joining us. We will see you for episode 26.